listening to Adoption, Fostering and Tea from the UK's LGBT plus adoption and fostering charity, New Family Social. Find us at newfamilysocial.org.uk. I'm Tor and this week I'm going to be having a cup of tea with Noel and Sarah and talking about them being foster carers with diverse extended families. Hi both of you. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. It's really lovely to have you both. Do you mind telling me a bit about yourselves? My name's Sarah. I um, live in London. I'm 35 years old and currently fostering with my partner, Noelle. Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm Noelle. I am, uh, I, I am British, but I'm not originally British. Um, I have a, my father's Arab and my mother is American, um, but I've lived here for 23 years. So I guess I'm British. Um, I uh, Yeah, I've been fostering for about three years now. Um, and my partner, Sarah, started fostering with me when I was about a year into fostering. And then we went back through the process again. So now we're both um, approved foster carers and we have a young person in our care, a 14-year-old girl at the moment. That's so interesting. So you were already a foster carer and then you got together and then you had to be reassessed, did you? Is that how it worked? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I was originally, a, I mean, I started the process before I'd met uh, Sarah. And so I was approved in 2018 as, a, as an individual foster carer. Um, and then uh, Sarah and I met and when the relationship got to a stage where it was serious we decided which you know as a lesbian couple was quite quickly um, <laughs> very stereotypical um but we we did let the foster service we had to let the foster ser- fostering service know and to be honest with you i wasn't aware that she'd have to go through the process i thought she just needed to go through a, a dbs and like a sort of a, a risk assessment approval process but it turned out that we we had to go through the assessment including myself we had to go through the assessment process again and this time as a couple so that was and that was about that was probably about a year after I was originally approved or a year and a half after I was originally approved yeah um so we were reapproved um in March 2020 we we went to panel so I went to panel again for a second time well we, it wasn't actually reapproved we actually it was a yes and no and which was a bit of a kick in the teeth it felt like after um Noah had been approved and then as a couple it was a it's not a yes it's not a no it's um you can do respite only for the first year um at weekend so that kind of threw us a bit because uh we thought the first time around with Noel, it's well have you got enough support this and that and then as a couple we had a huge amount of support from either sides and then it come back as a maybe so that kind of left us yeah feeling a bit flat for a while but um well soon after that COVID hit and we soon got approved for full time. Yeah. Why, why didn't they approve you in the first place for full time do you know? There was some uh, we were looking to get married. Um, we still are due to COVID. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it was that we had, we had a couple of kind of big events coming up in our lives that you know we assured them that having a child in our care it wouldn't affect. Um, we, we would adapt our big plans, incorporate the child and their needs and their feelings first. But I think I don't know. We we just got told that that we thought 
that they thought maybe it was too much and that we needed to get that out the way first. So, I mean, we kind of walked away not quite knowing. Um, we also wanted to, we said that we were going to start uh, a family, uh, have a child of our own, and they thought that we should do that prior, um, which kind of threw us a bit because we thought, well, if we were a heterosexual um, couple, you could fall pregnant any time. But yeah. as a, a same-sex couple, it's like we had to do that process first, get it out the way. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I think they they felt that us getting married was going to be stressful and we should focus on that. And But actually, you know, because COVID came along and all our plans anyway got got um, got messed up and got moved around and switched around, we actually have a young person with us now. Um, and in fact... She's happy. She's going to come to the, you know, she's going to be, she's not going to be in the wedding. She doesn't want to be in it, but she is going to be there. She's quite happy to come along. Um, and I mean, in fact, it's, it's worked out really well. And the fostering service are really happy with, with the fact that she's part of the family and, and she'll be there like, like all the rest of our family. So that hasn't been an issue. The issue of having our own child is still there. And, um, yeah, they, they they basically said there would be the stress of going through the process and the emotional stress, and they were worried about the impact it would have on the child. We kind of just said to them, you know, look, these are one of the things that we're supposed to do as foster carers is we're supposed to give children um, as normal, and, you know, I put that in quotes, as normal a childhood as possible. Well, part of a normal childhood is normal family life. And, you know, we're not going to sort of send the child away while we go and get married and go on honeymoon. Mm -hmm. We're not going to send the child away while we go and, you know, have our own child. It's, it's all part of being in a family. And I think the fostering service still uh, has difficulty with that, but was having difficulty with it. But they've, they just they said that perhaps we should only do respite until after we got married. At that time, we were supposed to be getting married in May. We were approved in our panel was in March, and we were getting married in May. Um, and they said so. Let's wait until after. So they they said you know we'll put you down for. They said we'll wait. So they were going to delay placing a child with us until July, and then after that it was going to be respite only for a year. Right. And then when we went back to panel, because after your first year, you go back to panel to sort of be reassessed and, and, and have your approval confirmed. So they said, when we go back to panel, then they'll decide. So we said, you know, I mean, you don't really have a choice. You, you, that's the decision. Um, and it was like having the wind taken out of our sails because firstly, I was already approved. So it was kind of, for me, it was almost like being demoted. Yes. You know, uh, especially as when I was first approved, they mentioned as a weakness that I didn't have a strong enough support network because I was a single carer. Yeah. And I felt like bringing Sarah into the mix was was bolstering my support network. I thought, oh, hang on a sec. I'm no longer a, a single carer. Not only do I have Sarah, but I have her support network as well. So I've, I've doubled yeah. my support network. So I thought that was a strength. And then to be told that it was a weakness was quite a, it was a shock to be honest it was a shock to our to our social worker um her manager was in the panel with us and 
the four of us were just sat there in silence and kind of shocked at the at the result. Um, so it was, it was a bit disappointing, and Sarah felt. Well, you, I couldn't say. I couldn't help but feel like it fell on me to be honest, um, yeah. because if Noel got approved first time round, then anything other than being approved again kind of felt well, it was my fault. Yes. Um, so that yeah we. We went out for lunch straight afterwards. And I think we both kind of sat there in silence for about an hour and a half because yeah. it just, yeah, we were pretty numb, weren't we? We were. I mean, I, d- I don't think, I have to say, I, I don't think, I don't think that their decision had was had anything to do with us being a same-sex couple. No, I don't think that. I, I think it was just that there were some major life events coming up. Um, but the thing with fostering is you can't, put your life on hold you can't you know and, and this was the thing is how long do you wait so we, we were going to get married do we wait till before panel after panel you know what do we do and you you can't put your life on hold you have to if you put your life on hold you could be <clears throat> delaying things you know for years and it might never actually happen so you have to continue to live your life and do things as you want to do them um and but it's really fostering is quite invasive in that you do have to share everything with the service and you do have to tell them. And it did come up actually in our panel. They did ask me, when was it that I told the fostering service about my relationship and, and when, you know, and it, and there was a discussion over whether I was sort of forthcoming and transparent early enough, you know, or did I hold anything back? And, you know, that, that felt that does doesn't feel very nice when you th- when somebody thinks that they you're deliberately keeping secrets, but also it's quite difficult because having a child of our own is a very personal thing, and it's also um you know the whole process is very intrusive to your private life, and, and I, I completely understand that, and they have to, but um you know if if you're not aware if if you've got some a can of worms that isn't ready to be open, it, it can be quite detrimental. Luckily, that wasn't the case for us, but. Obviously, they delve right into your past and your future. <laughs> yeah, and your future. Um, and so you kind of feel in a pretty, you know, you're laying there bare, so to speak, and vulnerable. And so to get the no stroke, yes, I think that was kind of a yeah. You're already feeling a bit vulnerable because they know everything about you. There is no, you know. No stones left unturned, really. Um, I can understand that with the when do you tell a thing, because often the question comes up, or at least the topic comes up, before there's much of a relationship built. And so you end up opposite somebody who perhaps might be a stranger very early in the process. And if you miss that moment to tell them the thing, whatever the thing is, you're then kind of watching a clock thinking, at what, what's the point at which I can now bring this back up and introduce it without it being deemed too late and that I've covered it up? And we talk to agencies a bit about that now to say, it's really hard to tell your innermost private thoughts to somebody when you're only meeting them for the second time. So to be understanding really that sometimes if something comes up on meeting 10 rather than meeting two, you're still being told. It's just you're being told at a point that somebody feels more able to tell it and we're asking agencies to think about giving people an opportunity to revise some stuff a bit later, because sometimes people don't say some stuff about their history or about their identity or about their background or whatever it is at first for fear that they'll be thrown out the process or something. And we're saying to them at a later stage, say, you know, we've covered some sensitive ground. Would you like to add some stuff and see if people 
need that second opportunity to be more open because it's hard at first. That's um, a really good point, actually. In fact, we had that, a co- I had that a couple of times um, and it's just out of sheer kind of forgetting, really. And you might be watching something on TV and something happens and you think, oh, my, you know, my God, that, you know, I experienced that and I, I haven't brought that up. And if I bring it up now, will they think I tried to hide that? Um, so actually that's, I think if they were to say at the start, you know, this is a process where, like you say, it doesn't matter if you bring it up in session one or session 10, it's just gathering information. I think it would kind of ease a lot yeah. less sleepless nights, I guess. Mm. I mean, I decided to tell the fostering service quite early. I was fortunate and unfortunate in the sense that my assessing social worker, I got along really well with. Um, we were of a similar age and similar uh, background. She also had um, you know, a, a father who was Muslim and, and a mother who was uh, Christian and kind of had a similar upbringing to my own. So we, we hit it off from, from the start and it was, it was easier. It was, it was quite easy for me to share things with her because it felt like I was talking to a friend. She was lovely actually. And she shared quite a bit of her own story, which made me kind of open up more to her. She then, sadly, <laughs> I say I was lucky and unlucky. So I was lucky in that sense. And she was supposed to be my supervising social worker for my first year. Um, but there was some changes at the service and she ended up leaving. And um, so she, she didn't even take me to panel, which was disappointing. But she then reappeared um, in my fostering journey. She was the social worker to a, a young person that I was um, – uh, that she had, she decided she she thought we'd be a, a match. So I was matched with a, a young person for a respite placement, and she was the one that put my name forward because she thought we'd be a good match. So when I told them about Sarah, about my relationship, um, it was very early in the relationship, mm. and I told her because one, I knew her and I was comfortable with her. We'd had a lot of conversation, and it, so I was comfortable sharing it with her. In fact, I told her before I told my my supervising social worker. Um, but also I was going to meet the child for the first time. So I, I, I pulled my, that the, her social worker aside and I said, listen, you know, I, before this happens, I need to tell you this. Um, and so I shared it with her and actually, you know, she was over the moon. She was so happy for me and she was, you know, congratulations. And that's great. She was very supportive. She said, no, 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 you know, it's not a problem at all. It'll, it, you know, and she really didn't make it, feel like it was um like it was a big deal she was she was excellent actually through my original assessment process she she was excellent she's the one who put me in contact with new family social i'd I'd not heard of them Mm. exactly so she i mean she was for me she's she was brilliant i you know it's just such a shame that she couldn't have been my supervising social worker but she was the one that put me in touch so she's been quite supportive from day one, and I I did feel very comfortable sharing something with her at a very early stage, but also I felt I needed to because there was something happening. I was being matched with a young person, and I thought, okay, you know, the you know maybe I'm wrong about this, and the relationship will fall apart after a month or whatever. But there's a pretty big step happening within my fostering journey, and I I, I should tell them now that like, look, this is something. And I think it's going to be serious, and so I'm sharing it with you. So I, I can see it is it is difficult because it's hard to tell when. But I think that 
maybe they could be more helpful. They could say, they could maybe give guidance and say, you know, if there is a big event, so for example, you, you're potentially going to be matched. That's a that's a, a an event that you may wish to share some additional information, or um, I don't know because it's hard to it's hard to tell. But I did make that decision because I was comfortable um, with with the social worker. So. I think that goes a really long way, doesn't it? If you've got that relationship in place, and if somebody feels kind of human to you, it is much more easy to be human back rather than yeah. attempting to running it like a sort of a job interview where they're very formal and you're very formal back. I think if they can be a bit more human, it does make it an awful lot easier to bring all parts of yourself to it. Absolutely. You both, you've both mentioned your extended families and I'm really interested in how that worked in terms of you talking to them about wanting to foster, um, but also how the assessment worked in relation to your extended families. Yes, I I told um, my mother my mother and her side of the family before I told my father and his side of the family. Um, my father is is Arab Muslim, and there are different different feelings around fostering and adoption. Adoption in Islam is there. They there you can't adopt in the way that you can in non-Islamic societies because of the way that um, Islam treats inheritance. So the inheritance rules are, are very clear. And when you adopt, it's the, the child is not deemed to be your, your biological child, and so they don't come under inheritance. And it causes a lot of issues. Um, there's also issues as to within Islam as to who you can marry and who you can't marry. Um, and somebody who's adopted is not biologically related and is therefore, you know, could marry, you know, the, the brother, you know, who's not biologically their brother, but who's, but who's, um, you know, legally, I suppose, the brother. But so those issues make it complicated within Islam. Um, I'm not an expert. I'm sure there might be other issues. But fostering is actually very much accepted. And in fact, when I told my um, Muslim family uh, I was nervous, but they were really supportive and they have been incredibly supportive. And th- they actually called it Islamic adoption. And I thought, oh, okay. Oh, that's <laughs> interesting. I never heard that, Islamic adoption. And they, because it's, you're adopting a child in the sense that you're bringing a child into your home, you're raising them like they're your own child, you know, you're, you're helping them, you're feeding them, you're, you know, doing all the things that you would do as a parent. But legally, they have their name, you have your name, they, you know, so it, it, it works really well, I think, for Muslims and for Muslim families. Um, and I, you know, I have to admit, I hadn't really thought of it um, in that way. And so actually, I've had a lot of support. And in fact, they've, you know, they, they've been, uh, I don't know how to put it in English, um, you almost kind of, so when you do a good deed, you kind of get, I don't know, points with God. I don't, I don't know how to put it, really. Like um, good karma, almost. Good karma, exactly. Good karma is a good way, is a very good way of putting it, yeah. So, I, and I get that a lot, you know, my aunt, my father, whenever they ask, they, you know, they'll ask me how things are going, how's the young person, how, and whenever we have the conversation, they always end it with, you know, you're doing a very good thing, you're doing a very good deed, and, you know, you're, you're you've got you're getting good karma you know you're getting um 
I, I don't know how to put it, but it's kind of thing, something that will help you in the afterlife. So, yeah, so it's actually been quite positive. And my mom's family have been brilliant, um, apart from the fact that my mom can't stop calling our young person my daughter. How's your daughter? And I keep <laughs> having to explain to her. Um, but she's, I mean, I love it. I love that she's making that mistake because I, I think it just shows how much she's embraced it and embraced the idea. They haven't yet met because of covid um, in fact, our young person hasn't met any of my family because they're all abroad. Um, but Sarah's family have been uh, are in the UK, and so she's met a lot of them. So yeah, I'll let Sarah tell her. <laughs> her um, mine's very uh, similar to Noelle's. Um, I haven't. I've told my father, who's Turkish Cypriot. Um, and Muslim, Muslim, but Muslim background, but doesn't particularly follow the religion. Um, but the, the background is, is very much Muslim, and he's very accepting of it. He, um, the rest of the family don't know. Um, they don't particularly know I'm gay either. Hmm. Um, I don't see them that often. In fact, I haven't seen them for many years. It's one of those things that. I'm not going to shout about it if I go over there because I respect their religion. But if I were, they would come over here and I bumped into them, I, I think I'd have to, for myself, be open and honest and true to myself mm. um, because this is who I am. I, so, but my father um, has been brilliant, actually, really good. Uh, English family, absolutely brilliant. Um, a good set of net, uh, a network. My friends have got a lot of support. Our young person has met my family. Um, they got really well. In fact, my mother come stayed while Noel was away for a couple of weeks. And yeah, it was it was very relaxed. Um, so yeah, we've actually uh, we're lucky in that respect. That okay, we've got quite a diverse background, but yeah. we've got a lot of support. Yeah, it really sounds that way. Was it okay during assessment that you weren't out to your very extended family? Because for some families, we hear that that's becoming a stumbling block in their assessment, that they're sort of deemed not out enough. I think they did ask that. And I completely, you know, if I was a person asking a question, I'd have my kind of concerns. But they they asked whether our extended family would have any involvement with the child. And for my case, no. And I'm pretty sure for... Well, I mean, yeah, it did. It came up, but it didn't feel like um, there was a heavy focus on it. They did ask it. Um, it certainly came out in the, in the original assessment process, um, and it certainly came out in, in panel. But um, no, I mean, you know, obviously I was honest with them and I told them, and I just said it's not going to happen. I don't know if it helped that I had a um, assessing supervisor that had a Muslim family, you know, was half Muslim as well. Um, I'm not sure, but she did understand. She she really could relate to what the things that I was sharing with her. And, and I think she had, she wasn't gay herself, but I think she, she knows kind of the conservative um, uh, views of the family and, and just the way, you know, um, I, I think she, she could relate to it. To be honest, I think it was more of a discussion. I mean, Sarah and I have had uh, more discussions about it because we've talked about, well, what are we going to do? But 
my family is not in the UK. So I don't know if maybe the fostering service felt like it wasn't a, a major issue because actually they're not here and they're not going to be involved. Yeah. I am. I, um, I actually felt it strangely worked in our favor because we had experience with the difficulties of one coming out or, you know, not being able to tell family members because of religion, background, belief, whatever, of who we are. Um, and because we had that kind of first-hand experience, it's something, it's something my social worker, uh, when I went through the process, said, you know, got this experience, you could relate to a child um, going through that who may be gay, uh, may be going, whatever, but feels that they can't talk or they have to hide something. So I kind of felt like it, I guess like a feather in our cap of how to help a child, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think I think that's true. And I think it's good advice to people to frame experiences in that way, really, that this was a difficulty, but this is what I take from it. This is what I bring because of this kind of, in quotes, more negative experience or more challenging experience, if you like. So it sounds like in you framing it as that, I think that really helps with the assessment sometimes rather than revealing it as a problem and then cowering away, you know, just being up front and saying, yeah, there was this. Yes, it doesn't look like you might have hoped or expected, but here it is. And this is what I've learned from it. I think it can be a really positive thing. I think, absolutely. Um, sorry, I, I think what our, my, our foster, uh, I'm sorry, our social worker made really clear and was quite helped you relax during the whole process is that you don't have to be perfect and actually having this in your background or that in your background actually just kind of makes you a bit more resilient foster carer mm. with uh, more experience so yeah you can see it as some people could see it as a negative but you can also spin it around to actually as a positive yeah I agree with you completely so how's it going with your young person um it's it's going it's going well um it's been an interesting journey um as I said, we were approved in March of 2020 and then the pandemic hit and then things were kind of a bit um, uncertain. Even with the fostering service, it, with placements, it was a bit difficult. Um, they did end up having a higher demand um, and we did get a respite placement in June of last year um, that was only two weeks. It was supposed to be six weeks, but it was only two weeks. And then there was kind of a long period of no placement, well, I say long, from June till October. Um, and our young person, we now have a 14-year-old girl placed with us. She's been with us since the end of October. Um, and it's been interesting because it, it's our first sort of placement, um, even though we had the respite for two weeks. Um, this one is a long-term one, which is, which is fantastic. So, um, well, I say, sorry, <laughs> it's fantastic for us. Um, obviously, it's it's not great for the child that she's had to come into foster care in the first place. But uh, hopefully, it's it it's good for her because she'll have a long term stable home. It's been interesting because it's coincided with pandemic and with lockdown. So we've we've the first year of fostering they always say is challenging. Um, a lot of foster carers drop out after the first year because they find it too challenging. Um, it's it, maybe not what they'd hoped it would be they they you know they they struggle to to 
adapt to the lifestyle change because it's a very big lifestyle change. And then we had the pandemic and lockdown. So there was, you know, the whole world was going through a lifestyle change. Um, so we kind of got hit with, with, um, with a double whammy really. Um, and so it was, it was challenging in that respect. We also have a young person who is, they, you go through all these training courses and they prepare you for a lot of challenging behaviors, but we have a young person who's completely withdrawn and doesn't really speak. Um, well, she does now, but when she came to us, when she, when she came to us, um, she was very withdrawn. Her hair was always down, sort of kind of covering her face. Her hood was always up, you know, she, she was barely audible, one word answers, um, we suspected it might be a selective mutism where she, because with her friends, we could hear her talking and it was, you know, normal voice, laughing, chatting away. But with adults, head down, eyes down, um, almost whispering. And I have to, <laughs> nothing really prepares you for that. It's really yeah. tough. It's really tough um, having um, a young person who, who doesn't communicate at all. I mean, she wasn't even communicating to ask for her basic needs to be met. So we were, um, you know, we, we made sure to make, to, to have bottled water in her room at all times because she wouldn't ask for a drink of water yes. if she was thirsty. And we, and we, we would know. She, and if you asked her anything, it was always no. Do you need this? No. Are you hungry? No. Everything was no. She didn't want to be a problem. She didn't want to be a burden. She didn't want to be seen. Yes. Um, so it was, you know, We'd only just met her. We didn't know her, so it's hard to and you know predict somebody's needs or anticipate what they want or what they like. And so it was a real guessing game. And we just kind of had to to make sure that there were snacks in her room and drinks in her room. And we didn't force her really to come out if she didn't want to. But we all, but from the beginning, we always eat dinner together as a family at the table. Yeah. No TV, no phones, and we established that from the start, and we've maintained it. We always walk her to the bus stop and collect her from the bus stop. Um, and we do that every day and we've maintained it. And there are these little consistencies that we've kind of put into our daily routine seem to have paid off. She's more and more comfortable. She's a bit more chatty now. She, she has shared stuff with us um, in conversation unprompted, which is, I mean, little victories. Um, she came down, I mean, I think it was only about a month ago or five weeks ago, she came down uh, with her with a, her water bottle and just went to the tap and filled it and went back upstairs. Yes. And Sarah and I just looked at each other and couldn't believe it. We did, we did a little champagne. We did. We did, <laughs> we did this little silent cheer, hands waving, because it's a tiny, I mean, it seems so insignificant to, to anyone else, but. It's a huge, huge step forward for a young person to just feel that she could come downstairs and just go to the kitchen and fill her water bottle and go back upstairs. I think it was huge. We've introduced things as well in the house. It's really hard, that balance of when do you start, not I want to say introducing chores, but at the same time, it's not a chore, sounds like Back to work, but you know, we we, um, we have her come down and lay the table and prepare the drinks. Um, we'll cook and we'll wash up and everything. But it's it's when do you introduce that? Because until you start introducing these little things, 
they're always well I feel they're going to feel like they're a guest yes. you're going to be treating them like a guest and well actually they're not they're part of the family and um, you want to treat them like they're part of the family like they belong here and so belonging here you would muck in you work as a team and um, but it's that when do you introduce it when's a good time and you don't want to do it too soon but you also don't want to leave it too late because then you know all they're going to think well where's this come from you know I've been quite happy sat in my room playing and now you've got me doing this and got me doing that <laughs> so it's uh is a friend actually said to me you know you've got to look at it like they're work as a team and if you work as a team what do you do and kind of put it that way instead of saying oh here's your weekly chores and it's you know but so it's uh and making her more comfortable in the kitchen where you know you know can you go get the drinks at the fridge and get her used to opening the fridge instead of us doing everything for her and so it's yeah it's that when do you introduce it it's because you want them to fit in, uh, settle in, and you want them to get to the point where they feel comfortable. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. It sounds a bit, it does sound like you're very in tune with, or at least that you found a path that seems to be working, which is, which is fantastic. So if mm-hmm. other people are listening to this and thinking about fostering, what would your advice be, each of you? Um, absolutely. Uh, I wouldn't discourage it at all. Um, they do a great course actually at the start. Um, it's fostering skills, I skills think. to foster, skills to foster, and that really is an eye opener. I mean, they there's a two day course and it's all day Saturday and Sunday. I think it, is. it might have changed, um, but it really does kind of throw everything at you. Um, in fact, I went on it after the kind of the whole discussion, so I was sat there going through the process on it with other people that hadn't even met a social worker or anything they were just kind of in the idea of shall we foster or not um and you have an approved experienced foster that comes along um speaks with the the host um and you really like I say they don't leave anything else so they don't kind of sweeten it so it's all wonderful there are times where it can be um, unpleasant it can be scary it can yeah it, it throws you a bit but it's all provided to you and I think if you just go to that course um, you're either going to say it's not for me or actually I love it bring on a child I want to help yeah I mean <clears throat> I I would say if somebody's thinking about fostering I would say go for it and in terms of go for it, I mean, get in touch with the fostering service. Um, I didn't do a lot of research. I just went to my local authority uh, in the borough. They advertised quite a lot. And I'd seen over the years the advertisements, and it was always kind of at the back of my mind. And then when I was ready to do it, I just, that's who I, I just emailed them, and they were brilliant. The next day they came around. I know it's not the same. I, I would I think because I had such a great experience from the from the get go I just stayed with them, mm-hmm. um, but I know other foster carers who have kind of shopped around. Um, there are private agencies. There there's the the local authority. Um, you can actually foster for another local authority. It doesn't have to be your own. We have some foster carers in our borough um, that actually don't even live in the borough, but they foster children from the borough. Yeah. So um, you know there are other options out there. So I would say. Definitely get the information, you know, start the process, 
go on the skills to foster. I don't know if it's offered in every borough. Certainly in our area it is. Um, but find out the information. Um, talk to people who have fostered. Uh, see what their experiences are. So kind of go into it with your eyes open, really. Um, I think people kind of have this ideal, this idealistic um, perspective or view of it that, you know, oh, I'm going to help you know, your child. It's not all, um, it certainly isn't all roses. Um, it is challenging. It is a lifestyle change, but it's, it is incredibly rewarding as well. Uh, I've had a very positive experience. Um, I'm really glad that I did it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying the process now, but there have been challenges for sure. It can be exhausting. <laughs> it can be exhausting at times. It's important to make sure you have those support networks. Uh, but I, I, for me, certainly the benefits have outweighed um, the, the challenges. Uh, and I would say, yeah, absolutely, go for it. Get the information. Yeah, definitely. I think um, reflecting on the point that Noel made is that a lot of people think um, they're going to help a child at, and it becomes not so much an our experience, but um, one prior actually is you can't help everyone. And I think if you know that from the word go, it takes a bit of pressure off because I did kind of, when I first went into fostering it, and you hear these horror stories and you think, well, you feel like you can't voice your opinion and mm. say I'm struggling. Um, and it's actually, we were respite carer for another carer and she'd been it for 20 years. And actually she turned around one point and said, um, I'm speaking to my social worker. I'm going to have to say, you know, you have to come and get the child because I can't look up after her. I haven't got the tools. So actually... As, as much as it was sad for the child to go back into uh, into care with the social worker, it was actually quite a relief to hear that, okay, you know, you can say at some point, I'm struggling, you know, there is that. Uh, it was actually quite a relief to think we're not superhuman, we can only do our best, um, and if that's not good enough, or not good enough, if that's not enough, you have to be brave enough to say, and smart enough, because it only will be a detrimental effect on the child but to say you, you know I, I really need some serious help here please advise me yeah actually I mean I'd forgotten about that that was um so that was a, a, a shared care arrangement we had a or in fact it was when I was a, a a single care I had a shared care arrangement where I was providing respite care for a child so I wasn't the primary foster carer I was only doing the respite every other weekend and school holidays and so, but the child um, had quite complex emotional needs. Um, and I was new to it. It was the first time I'd, you know, she was the first foster child that I'd um, been matched with. And it took the experienced foster carer to say, you know, look, she has serious emotional needs and we are not qualified to do it what she needs you know we need to speak to the fostering service and i i honestly i you know i agree with with sarah because i 
I don't know if I would have done that. I don't, I think I would have seen it as, well, I'm the foster carer and I have to do this and I have to find a way to help her. But actually the experienced foster carer said, no, you know, we're not qualified to provide her with the help that she needs. Um, she ended up sadly going into a residential, um, residential care, which is sad, but actually it's what she needed. Um, it's where she was going to get the expert um, and professional help that she needed. And had she stayed with us, I mean, it could have been catastrophic. Uh, she, she was, she was, um, ex you know, having experiencing thoughts of self, not just self harm, but suicidal thoughts. And she, and the, the other carer was right. We, we simply were not qualified to be looking after a child with that level of emotional needs. So, um, so it's sad, but, but Sarah raises a good point. You have to, it's really important to know what your limits are, what you can and cannot do. And you have to not be afraid to say, I can't do that. I'm not qualified to do that or I need help. Um, but even our social worker, when we had a meeting the other day, she said, oh, you know, take my hat off to you. I couldn't do your job. So there's even the social worker saying she doesn't feel that she could do it. And so you can, you know, I would say to people thinking about it, go for it. Try At least go on the course. But don't be afraid to put your hand up in the future and say, I need help or I can't do this because there are people, the social workers, who, you know, completely understand and won't look at you like, well, this is what you signed up for, this is your job, this you're failing. It's not like that at all. Yeah, the, the support is there. So if you are finding out, if you are looking to foster and you're looking at it and you're thinking, oh, I couldn't possibly do this or I can't do that, there are training courses that help you to understand, that prepare you. Um, and there's also, there, there is support within the, the fostering service itself. We, we're part you. of a fostering network and uh, we've got WhatsApp groups um, and there's forums, there's coffee mornings. And there's, so... The amount of times, you know, your phone might ping up and it's someone just asking a general question and someone will come along and say, the answer's here or search this person. Someone else might phone, uh, text him and say, I'll give you a call later and we can discuss it. So it's a huge amount of support out there. That's really lovely. And it's such good advice as well that you are able to say no if you need to and you're able to ask for help if you need to. That's such good advice. <laughs> Thank you so much to both of you taking the time to talk to me. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. I'd like to thank my guests today, Noelle and Sarah. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter at LGBTAdoptFoster and on Facebook, search New Family Social, all one word. Visit our website at newfamilysocial.org.uk. Adoption, Fostering and Tea is produced by New Family Social. The presenter was me, Tor Doherty, with music from Matt Doherty. The producer was John Jenkins. We'll be back next week with more guests and more tea.